As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What is up, my friend? How are you? Chilling, man. As per usual, uh, I do want to get some stuff out of the way real fast, just in the beginning of this very episode, especially for you folks that are watching us live here on YouTube. Um, I uh, heard through the grapevine, i.e. the YouTube comments, that uh, some of the volume levels were a bit low. Um I want to give you a heads up that like we do this kind of on purpose. Uh, we have some like background hiss that we still have to get rid of that we usually clean up and post. That doesn't make its way into the audio podcast, um, but uh, as a way to placate you guys, uh, we've tried our best to boost the levels of the uh, of the live stream, uh, which shouldn't affect our podcast here. Um, but uh, if you're watching online. Uh, please let us know if this sounds any better uh, and if the background hiss is like too much for you. It's something I can't clean up in, in like live streams, um, but you know, if it doesn't bother you then and you prefer to just hear our beautiful voices much louder than they usually are, then we'll keep going with that. Yeah, I mean, if it's an issue, you can always just listen on um, iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast network. That's what most people listen to us on. But um, all right, now that we got that got that out of the way, um, how is everything? Good, man. Good. Uh, I've, I think doing the uh, research for this has been pretty fun because you can dive into a whole lot of rabbit holes. I think you know um, the invasion of Iraq kind of unearths a lot of a lot of things. What, what was your experience of of um, you know doing the research here? I mean, I, I've been looking into this for a, a long time now, and it's easy to get stuck in the different nuances of, of uh, the invasion of Iraq, uh, especially since there's been such a long history on it. But what what did you discover? Well, uh, I discovered that my running gag that the deeper you go into any of these history topics, uh, the farther you go into, you know, like alien astronaut theory, <laughs> ancient astronaut theory, evidently. Uh, I was doing some some work on this, and I stumbled across a, a video that had David Icke on it, who's a proponent of like lizard people. <laughs> so apparently, everything, all all of what we're going to talk about today, evidently stems from lizard people. So, just giving you guys a heads up that that's what I learned. <laughs> I don't think David Icke actually means lizard people. No, 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 no. He means actual reptilian he means actual lizard, li- lizard people. people. Yes. And I watched this like two hour stupid documentary. Uh, it was about, it starts, like it caught me because it was Donald Rumsfeld talking about how they lost like $2.3 trillion of Pentagon budget. And it was like, you know, where could this have gone? And I'm like, huh, okay, I'm interested. Like, tell me where, where did the money go, right? And then suddenly it takes a hard, like, 
I don't know if it's left or a right turn, but it just turns really hard. And it's like lizard people are, you know, infiltrating the top echelons of our world governments and and they're causing us to do like crazy human sacrifices and pedophilia and i'm like oh so this is where QAnon gets it and i'm like okay i get it okay <laughs> I, I still watch that that was hilarious i think david Ike he purposely sabotages himself <laughs> yeah yeah he does i think some of these crazy conspiracy theorists they just they'll be talking about something that may be hold water and then they'll just they'll they'll toss kookadoo nonsense on it just to discredit themselves so they're not taken seriously yeah like one thing that that's a theory of mine one thing that really caught me off guard was like they were like talking about the ancient history of like of uh you know how the lizard people and like the elongated skull people uh were you know in power and shit and they were like they said this one thing about like in ancient egypt like thousands of years ago before, uh, during the book burning of Alexandria that they, they stole, they took all of the good books and they put it in the Vatican. And I'm like, wait, the Vatican didn't exist then during the ancient Egypt times. Or am I wrong about that? <laughs> right? Like, the, No, the Vatican did not exist the, the before book bur- The book burning of <laughs> the book burning of like the burning of Alexandria happened like thousands of years before, right? Well, the burning the burning of Alexandria happened a couple of times. It's it's like a okay. It's like a it's a it's a very <laughs> it's a meme. Uh, misinterpreted is is a misinterpreted part of history that is used um, as political sloganeering. Mm-hmm. So people will blame different religions for the burning of that book. I mean, for, for the burning of uh, the Library of right. Alexandria. So you'll hear a lot of like hard wing, right, like hardcore right wingers be like, "It was the radical Muslims that burnt that library down." I mean, none of this holds water to the lizard people, though. <laughs> well, meanwhile, the 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 Library of Alexandria was burnt down a couple of times. Yeah, but it was most likely burnt down by. The Eastern Europeans, not, not Eastern Europeans, the Eastern uh, Roman Empire, the mm-hmm. Byzantine Empire, yeah. uh, that seems to be the most evidence because they slaughtered a lot of people in Alexandria, including all the Jews and all the all the pagans. They just massacred everyone, and there was like kind of a, a orgy of violence during that during that sacking. It was the lizard right, people, not, dude. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't the lizard people. It wasn't the lizard people, or maybe it was. Um, but yeah, I think uh, QAnon, that sort of stuff, is. I think it's just fun fan fiction. It sounds like that's what it is. To be honest, it's, it sounds like, like, knew... like a rewrite of, of current events. You know, like if you wanted to make like a more interesting like science fiction sitcom about this. Yeah, it's like fun fiction. It's it's fan fiction of current events. I wish I knew how to find it. Because I haven't, I I have zero clue where to find QAnon. I always, whenever I search for it, I can never find it. Um, so <laughs> someone's got direct. <laughs> someone's got to direct me to the link where I can read this stuff. Got to go on Four Chan. That's where it exists. Oh, I don't go on that shit. Yeah, I don't do Four Chan or Reddit or any of that bullshit. Well, that's where it started. So that's where you're gonna yeah. have to go if you want to learn about it. All right, so let's um, let's get into today's show. So um, I don't want to say this is part three, but it definitely relates to the past two episodes that we've been talking about with the um, with the rise of Al Qaeda and um, you know the events that led to nine eleven. 
we're going to talk about the second Iraq war and, um, you know, what were the events and, and what were, you know, how did everything cascade into an invasion of Iraq, which eventually cascaded into the global war on terror. So um, I guess the best place to really start is, uh, is uh, parallel to where we started our Syria podcast, which was back in World War One. because mm-hmm. here's a quote, here's a quote. So this is a quote from T.E. Lawrence about the British Empire's occupation of Iraq. All you need to do is replace England with America and it remains 100% relevant. So the people of England have been led in Mesopotamia into a trap from which it will be hard to escape with dignity and honor. They have been tricked, in, they have been tricked into it by a steady withholding of information. The Baghdad com- uh, communities are belated, insecure, and complete. Things have been far worse than we have been told. Our administration more bloody and inefficient than the public knows. It is a disgrace to our imperial record. It may soon be to inflame for any ordinary cure. We are day to day not far from a disaster. Mm-hmm. So just replace England with the United States and that and Meso- could have been Mesopotamia written. with Iraq. Some people might not know that that as well. Yeah. Then that would be 100% relevant. Right. And what TE Lawrence is TE Lawrence is is Lawrence of Arabia. Um, he is referring to the Iraqi insurrection of 1920. So after World War I, right. the British seized control of the country. Um, if you guys remember Sykes-Picot, which we've talked about a bunch of times on this podcast, the British and the French made a clandestine, clandestine deal to split up the Ottoman Empire. And the British took the southern part, so Iraq, southern Iraq, Jordan, Palestine, the French took the northern part, so northern Syria, uh, northern Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. And at the same time as a Arab insurgency in Syria took place and established a government in Damascus with, with King Faisal as the head of state, um, there was a popular uprising of both Sunnis and Shias and and. Um, you know, tribes, people, and city elites, they all broke into revolt against the British in Iraq. So this revolt was brutally suppressed by the British with, with the combination of, uh, you know, the classic playing tribes against each other and, and also um, bombing cities, bombing civilian cities with planes. Yeah. And this, invent- this eventually led to the British installing the former king of Syria, King Faisal, as their puppet king in in uh, in Iraq. So King Faisal has had a, a pretty interesting career at this point. He was the um, you know part of the Hashemite family. He was uh, one of T. E. Lawrence's main guys in the Arab revolts in, during World War One. He was pretty much elected king of Syria. He was deposed by the French. And now he has a job with the with with the British being king of Iraq. And the British, in addition to that, they revert back to the old Ottoman system of putting the minority Sunnis in all the major government positions because this is the origin of the sectarian divide in Iraq that, that leads to like all the bloody civil wars between Sunnis and Shiites after after Iraq war. Um, the 
the British uh, essentially giving the Sunnis the dominant power who are the minority. It's kind of like the reverse of Syria, how mm-hmm. the Syria is, is uh, ran by a minority coalition of Alawites, Shiites, and, and Christians. You flip that on your head, you have Iraq. Right. Um, and, and I got another quote for you that's a little bit further earlier that I think um, uh, that kind of uh, is, is a similar parallel as your um, Lawrence of Arabia quote. And this is by uh, Lieutenant General Sir Stanley Maud uh, of uh, Great Britain. And this is in relation to like why they got into Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq in the first place. So he wrote, he wrote, uh, our armies do not come into your cities and lands as conquerors or enemies, but as liberators. You people of Baghdad are not to understand that it is the wish of the British government to impose upon you alien institutions. See, the lizard people are real. Um, <laughs> it's the hope that the, of the British government that once again, the people of Baghdad shall flourish, enjoying their wealth and substance under institutions which are in consonance with their sacred laws. So this was like the thing that he said in, back in 1917 before the, you know, the revolts in the 20s, um, justifying their incursion into uh iraq now hopefully you know if, if you know anything about the uh, uh in current invasions of iraq it might sound familiar right um we are coming to liberate you from some oppressive you know people so that you can flourish once again and it has nothing to do with the fact that we want to impose anything on you why won't you just let us give you democracy <laughs> yeah and it was true so, that it was true then of true quote unquote it was true then for the British when they were uh, messing around in Mesopotamia, <laughs> and uh, I guess it was true quote unquote when you know the United States decided to jump in the ring. Well, a lot of British soldiers during World War One and World War Two, a lot. I was watching this documentary on the Suez Crisis, mm-hmm. and they were interviewing all these British guys, these former British soldiers, and they were shocked that they weren't welcomed in Egypt because. The Egyptians were trying, they were actively revolting against the British soldiers there. When Eisenhower brought in UN troops to get rid of to, uh, and threatened to to shoot, he threatened to shoot and kill the British soldiers in, in Egypt during Mm -hmm. the Suez crisis. Mm -hmm. The Egyptian civilians were throwing stuff and blocking roads so they couldn't escape. So they couldn't get out of the city, hoping that UN troops would shoot and kill them. And they were like, we don't understand why they don't like us. We always thought the British Empire was a force for good. We thought people wanted to be part of the British Empire. Yeah. So it was it was interesting. Other accounts, if you look at Winston Churchill's accounts, Winston Churchill's straight up fucking kind of a piece of shit. So let's let's fast forward though, for the sake of time, because sure. we can get we can get uh, stuck in the details. Um, fast fast forward to 1958, which is a very important year in the Middle East. So this is the year that Egypt and Syria, they joined to create the United Arab Republic. And at the same, the same year, the Iraqi monarchy ends up getting slaughtered in a left-wing coup led by Adel Karim Qasim. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, uh, so this is King Faisal's nephew, I think. His whole family is murdered in a really, really outrageously gory coup. coup coup attempt by like a left-wing national movement and this guy Gossam becomes president however the ideological diversity of the coup leaders at this time it, it leads to a, a breakdown in the government like it's 
it's um it's kind of complicated, but the the pan Arabist they they reject uh, Gossam's left wing ideology, and he's eventually killed as well. Um, the CIA was actually sponsoring this coup, as is, as in tradition. And the reason why, just like long story short, Gossam rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, mainly because he tried to he tried to annex Kuwait. Which was a big, which was a, which you'll see is a big reoccurring Iraq, theme. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is a reoccurring theme. He also wasn't exactly on, on great terms with with uh, Nasser, who was kind of the face of Arab nationalism at that time. Mm-hmm. So he kind of ended up getting fucked. Um, but this this eventually leads into a very extremely inst- unstable uh, period in Iraq. So this is around the same time Iraq and Syria, they're basically running a very similar history. Both have kings, both are occupied, one's occupied by the British, one's occupied by the French. They're like two sides of the same coin. They both go through these extremely bloody, this very, very bloody decade of nonstop instability and coups. Mm -hmm. They're trying to form a government. And both governments... So just like Syria, same in Iraq, there's a rise in, in uh, pan-Arabism. So like a rebirth of Arab nationalism. And this gives a rise to the Ba'ath Party. What's really interesting, though, is that both the Ba'ath Party in Syria and Iraq actually hate each other. They same hate party each other. hate each other. <laughs> they, they hate each other. And it's, it's funny because Syria... Um, is an Alawite, you can call him a Shiite, just to, just to simplify it, mm-hmm. who is in a Sunni majority country, mm-hmm. and he, you know, he runs a, an authoritarian dictatorship. And then on the other hand, you have Saddam Hussein, who is a Sunni, in a Shia who majority. with a Shia majority, mm-hmm. who runs an authoritative dictatorship, but both very similar um, in the way the government is structured. And they go through both very similar histories and like coup d'etats and all that shit. Mm-hmm. The president of Iraq during this time, um, when the Ba'ath Party takes power, it's not really, he's, he's really old and it's not really effective. So you see this guy named Saddam Hussein rise up through the ranks. And it's during this time, the CIA starts putting out a lot of feelers to see what type of guy Saddam is and if we're able to work with him or not. Mm-hmm. So we start this covert relationship with Saddam before he becomes president of Iraq. And in the late 70s, when he finally does become president, the U.S. actually gives him a list. This is like the, this is the, the litmus test. They gave him a list of 800 Iraqis that we didn't like. So these guys were like, we gave him a, a list of 800. It's like, hey, take this list of 800 Iraqis. It's full of um, communists, professors, lawyers, leftists, just like people that the U.S. saw as, uh, you know, communist sympathizers or who could who could uh, cause Iraq to create a stronger relationship with the Soviet Union. He goes ahead and he takes all these people and he fucking kills. He just kills them. He hangs them and he broadcasts it on live TV. So. See, it was like, like whoa, okay. this guy's great. <laughs> like, we didn't even tell him to do anything. <laughs> we just gave him they're some like, names. <laughs> how? They're like, how about that? Yeah, fucked just, up, how, dude. How, how about that? Up. I think we can work with him. So, well, Saddam, up. we like, we, we uh, really appreciate the enthusiasm. 
Jesus. Seriously, this this is so fucked up. Eight hundred so, people. Eight hundred of his of his own people at that. You know, it's not like just eight hundred randos. I mean, it's eight hundred Iraqis. It's uh Saddam Hussein. I mean this guy uh this guy was pretty bad. Yeah. So meanwhile, um something is going something very strange is going on in Iran in the late seventies. Iran has an Islamic revolution. Oh boy. We didn't have anything and to do with that though, right? <laughs> we didn't have anything to do with it. So Iran has a, a Islamic revolution. Um, they overthrow the U.S. backed Shah. Um, listen to some of our, our our Iran episodes for the backstory on that. If you ha- if you don't know, but um, he Saddam Hussein decides to invade Iran, mm-hmm. um, and there's a number of reasons why he decides to do it. One of the reasons why Saddam decides to invade Iran is that Kuzakstan, which is the the part that he wants to annex, is in the southern part of Iran. It is Arabic speaking, so he feels justified in annexing that territory because hey, like they're Arabs. Um, it's also a very oil rich area. So combined with the oil fields that they already have in in Iraq, with with the oil fields in Kuzakstan. Then they would they would rival Saudi Arabia and the amount of oil production. The other big thing is that there's a threat of Shia, uh, the threat of a, a Shiite Islamic Republic. Now remember, Iraq is is a majority Shia country, so there is a um, a fear that a that the the definition part of the Shia tradition is that is a rejection of tyranny. So there's a legitimate fear that a Shia uprising could could essentially depose Saddam Hussein. And there's also, right now, Iran's military, like at the end of the Iranian revolution, the military is in complete disarray. So it's kind of like the Soviet Union before World War II. So if you ever, like before World War II, when the Germans... Um, when they secretly, or you know, when they planned Operation Barbosa, when they when they uh, went up into Belarus and they started to invade, they broke their deal with Joseph. Hitler broke his deal with Joseph Stalin. They advanced almost over to Moscow that first year mm. in that first major offensive before the before the winter came. They were on their way there, and a big reason why they were so so successful is because. The Soviet military was there was just a major um, purge within the military. Like Stalin had just had a bunch of officers purged to Siberia and uh, and killed because he didn't trust them. So the same sort of thing happened in Iran after the Iranian Revolution. A bunch of loyalists were killed um, after they deposed Reza Shah. So it was a good it was a good timing to do it. Um, also, they weren't on good terms with the U.S., so meaning that they weren't going to get a uh, you know they weren't going to get back. They weren't going to have weapons. Uh, well, they didn't expect uh, you know F-14s to get you know spare parts from the U.S., which the Iranians had a big supply of. So they thought that they thought the timing was right. 
to to uh, to strike. And when they when they when Saddam invades Iran, they fight an eight year brutal war, very much like World War One. So, the theme was poison gas, trench warfare, uh, stalemates, meat grinders, just meat grinder chaos. Mm-hmm. And the Reagan administration, they provide covert support to Iraq during this war. Right. So we're doing things like providing satellite photography to Iraq. Um, you know, we're revealing the movements of Iranian forces. Uh, we provide Iraq with intelligence gathered by Saudi Arabia. We're using uh, AWACS. Yeah, we're using AWACS. Which is air, um, airborne warning and control systems. It's like a long-range radar uh, for air defense. Iraq uses U.S. military intelligence to to collaborate attacks with mustard gas on Iranian ground troops. Mm-hmm. The 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 DIA they secretly provide detailed information on Iranian deployments, also tactical planning. bomb damage assessments like basically if you bomb this place what will happen right yeah Mm -hmm. so u.s and british companies at this time they are selling they sell materials to iraq that could be used to develop a nuclear a, a nuclear or a chemical or a biological weapon so Bio, biological agents for for diseases like anthrax and gangrene and, and you know West Nile virus. Uh, they're selling them the the um, the chemicals that make mustard gas, chemicals that make sarin gas, rocket programs. Just there's some interesting companies that came out of this that I didn't even know about. There's like a long list of them, but some of the ones that jumped out at me were like Hewlett Packard, Dupont, Honeywell. Uh, Hewlett Packard actually came up a lot. HP, like some of you might have an HP computer, uh, or, or I think I have an HP printer sitting like across the room from me, and they were like basically selling them all the parts and, and things like that to make nuclear reactors, rockets, uh, conventional weapons. Carl Zeiss, that was another one. I'm assuming that Carl Zeiss was giving them like optics for like scopes or something like that, um, but. Yeah, it was it's super long list of companies and materials that were sold to them during this period. What was this like? Um, what year are we on? Sorry, I lost my lost my place. We're we're in the nineteen eighties, right? So like eighty two, I think it was. Yeah, this was a prolonged operation to covert Saddam Hussein against Iran. Sorry, there's a fly on my head right now, and I'm trying to kill this fucker with a copy of Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> you guys can see it. I actually can see it. That's hilarious. I have a copy of Atlas Shrugged, and I'm going to kill this fucker. <laughs> so we don't have sirens anymore on the podcast, but now we just have this one persistent gnat <laughs> that just pisses Henry off. And then those will be our... <laughs> Our inter inter um, intermissions. It just it flies in front of my like right between my eyes, <laughs> and I go cross eyed looking at it. I'm like, what the fuck? And I've been trying to kill it with a copy of um, Atlas Shrugged, 
And I have a Winston Churchill book called The 40 Ways to Look at Winston Churchill. And the combination is not getting the job done. I think if you found uh, some more liberal books, it might work better. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> I, have, I have some liberal books somewhere. <laughs> somewhere. I do have some liberal books, but they're all about, like, Palestine. Um, all right. So back to the 1980s. Um, okay, so the U.S. So and the British companies were selling materials and, and things like that to develop all kinds of different weapons, including nuclear, chemical, biological, and just regular bombs and stuff. That's and take in mind that the U.S. is also covertly arming Iran through <laughs> right. uh, through Iran, through third through parties, Contra, yeah. through third parties, through Israel. We have a whole They're episode armed. on that one, too. <laughs> So they're covertly selling them parts, but at like a huge markup price. Mm-hmm. Israel is is directly fu- is uh, directly funding Iran. They're selling them two billion dollars in arms each year. Even though they're not friends, <laughs> they're they're not friends, but they don't like they hate Saddam Hussein a lot more than they hate Iran. Right. Um, they see him as a as a much bigger threat. Right. I mean, they're they're closer to them, and they have a better opportunity to create a missile program, and they're further in development at this time in a in a, in a nuclear program. Um, they attack in 1982 with uh, collaborating with the Iranians. They actually bomb and destroy in a in a Iraqi nuclear facility. Yep, it was interesting actually because the Prime Minister of Israel, um, Menachem Begin, he called like a televangelist here in the United States, Jerry Falwell. Uh, and like gave him a heads up that he was like, yo, tomorrow you're going to hear some shit. Some shit's going to go down. And I just wanted you to know that we're doing it because we feel like our safety is at stake. And this was kind of like a way for them, Israel, to like gain some some like uh, moral high ground or some cover from the Christian right uh, at the time. Now, keep in mind, um, you know, this is. I mean, arguably even still to today, you know, the Christian right happens to be a, a big voting block. And if you can get their approval, their seal approval on different actions and foreign policy, then, you know, you might be able to get away with it. But the problem was that Israel had all of these uh, F-16s that we had provided to them, and they were supposed to not use them for anything but defensive purposes. And this is explicitly an offensive thing, right? They did a preemptive strike against Iraq to blow up uh, one of their... Um, it was the Iraq's Osirak nuclear reactor. Um, and a lot of people in the Reagan administration weren't very happy about that. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, because of the, the, the kind of cover that they got had, um, early on from the Christian right, I think they were able to win that, um, win that war of minds, that battle there. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Yeah. Um, So towards the end of the war, they... So Saddam starts gassing um, Kurds, and it's actually kind of a, it's not a funny story, but it's an interesting story to say the least. So there was a campaign to recover lost territory lost territory at the end of the war. Um, one of the towns within the conflict zone was the Kurdish village of uh, Halabja. The Iraq flew over this village with U.S. supplied Bell helicopters Mm -hmm. and they gassed them at night hoping to kill the Iranian soldiers in this village. What had happened was that the night before all the soldiers left the villager, all the soldiers had left and the villagers, um, they returned after the Iranian soldiers left. So I, I, Brack was like, oops, Sorry. Yeah, so let me pull that back. You're, you're saying basically they went to to hit a Kurdish village because they believed that there was Iranian soldiers there, and there were at, at a certain juncture, and they used very deadly gas kind of indiscriminately on this village so that they can kill the Iranian soldiers. Turns out there's no Iranian soldiers, and they just killed the Kurdish people. Did I get that right? Yeah. That's how it initially started out. The first attack, the first major gas attack on a Kurdish village in March of 1988, it was a accident. Because Iraq kind of had okay relations with the Kurds at that time. The, the relationships got a lot worse after, after, that, yeah. after, after that massacre because, man, I forget the exact casualty number, but I think it's something like... 1,500 people died, something around that. It's over 1,000 people died in that gas attack. Like overnight? It was a mass... Overnight. It was a massacre. Like, it was a... The footage there is... is, You don't want to look at the footage. Um, So that that kind of cascaded into a larger ethnic genocide just because there were... There was resentment in Iraqi Kurdistan from Saddam Hussein going forward. But 
this war doesn't the, the Iran Iraq war it ends in a complete stalemate. Right. So it's an eight year long war. No territory is really gained. Um, you know, the beginning of the war, Iraq they gain some ground, but then Iran pushes them back, and you know they plan on you know they have a goal of actually going into Iraq, a lot like world how World War Two happened. Germany pushes they gain some territory, then a Soviet Union pushes them. They they push them out and they go all the way over to Berlin. Um, this is very similar in that regard. Um, however, th- this war does end in a stalemate, and during the end of the Iran Iraq war, well, one of the what according to George H W Bush, he says that the one of the reasons why Iran finally, one of the reasons the war ended is because we shot down an Iranian airliner, a commercial airliner. That was going from Oman to Tehran. Right. That was that was uh, seven hundred and fifty thousand people had died in the war already, and because we killed one air- one commercial airliner was was uh, the uh, primary reason why Iran finally signed a peace deal with Iraq. Yeah, and they they to this day use that you know incident as like uh, their their grounds for why they chant death to America. Like that's one of their founding principles or their founding um opinions on the united states is from that event yeah i mean there's on the the beach that the plane i believe the beach that the it's cemented in iranian nationalism and history Mm -hmm. um during the end of the war though both iraq and iran are broke so we're talking about a major catastrophic war right. uh, before we go forward. As far as we know, there was more Iranian casualties just because they weren't as well equipped and there were more bodies to throw in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Iran was doing a lot of terrible things too. They were using uh, child soldiers to like run into minefields and stuff like that. Both sides, both evil, uh, both bad, but... The, the chaos was just tremendous. So they were both broke. They go, they go to OPAC and OPAC agrees to cut oil production in order to raise the price of oil revenues for Iraq and Iran. So they can make their money back, basically. Yeah. However, it doesn't work because somebody's cheating. A UN commission, they discover that Kuwait was flooding the market with oil. In addition, they were slant drilling Iraqi oil fields. Okay, so slant drilling is when you're because Kuwait's super small too, right? So it's when you go, we drill down and then you drill straight across, like basic across the border, but underground and steal someone else's oil. In this case, it was um, Iraq's oil. Think of drainage. If you, you ever seen um, There Will Be Blood? Yeah. What, what scene are you referring to, though? The ending where he's like, drainage. If I have a straw that goes into your milkshake <laughs> and I, I drink your milkshake. That's the scene I'm talking about. You said that more than once on this show. I can't believe I don't remember it every time. (laughs) I drink your milkshake. He kind of sounds like Bernie Sanders a little bit. (laughs) 
I drink your milkshake. Um, so, yeah, slant drilling is that you're drilling underneath land to, uh, to mine oil uh, from a, another side of a border, essentially. So what Kuwait is doing is that they are flooding the market with stolen oil from Iraq. They're cheating, as you said. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 cheating. So Saddam Hussein he takes this as an act of war, and he goes to April Glapsey, uh, Glaspie, who is the U.S. ambassador of Iraq, and it tells her that, well, she tells him that we have. Um, I have the quote. We have. Considerable sympathy for your quest for higher oil prices, the immediate cause of your confrontation with Kuwait. We know you need funds. We understand that, and our opinion is that you should have the opportunity to rebuild your country. We can see that you have deployed massive numbers of troops in the South. Normally, that would be none of our business, but when this happens in the context of your other threats against Kuwait, then it would be reasonable for us to be concerned. For this reason, I have received an instruction to ask you in the spirit of friendship, not confrontation, regarding your intentions. Why are your troops massed so very close to Kuwait's borders? Saddam answers that he intends to try to negotiate a peaceful settlement with Kuwait. So, With a gun at their head. <laughs> yeah. Glaspie asks what Saddam... So she asks what Saddam would find acceptable. And he's like, um, you know, we... We're willing to make concessions if um, we get these certain strategic airways um, and they give us some control, some of these oil fields. And she replies by saying that we have no opinion on your Arab, your Arab, Arab conflicts, such as your dispute with Kuwait. And Secretary Baker has directed me to emphasize the instruction first given to Iraq in, 19, in the 1960s that Kuwait, that the Kuwait issue is not associated with America. So Saddam Hussein took that as a green light. Right. He took that as a green light to proceed with the invasion. I mean, what, what uh, she's saying is basically like, eh, that's not really our problem. Like, you guys figure it out. She's not saying, like, go for it, bomb them. But they're also not... It. I don't know. It, it's weird to me because it's like, why would you... I don't understand the point of asking the question, what is your, what's the point of your troops being at the border? Like, you know what the reason is. And then when he gives you the reason, just be like, yeah, it's not a problem. That part I, I didn't quite understand. Yeah. Um, it sounds like she kind of messed up giving him the demands. But what, what happens is that... Um, a few days later, Iraq will invade Kuwait. The battle takes about 48 hours. Um, the Kuwait army, ends up, they end up running into Saudi Arabia. It takes them 48 hours to evacuate, really. Like, there is no battle. Mm. So immediately reports of atrocities start to appear. So things like bayonetting babies Whoa. and raping raping flight stewards and and uh the you know the baby on incubator 
What's the whole what's baby the ba- on incubator? What's the baby on incubator? So there were report. So there were reports that that um, Iraqi Republican guards were taking babies and they were pulling them out of incubators and letting them die. Like that like ended up being, and shit. Yeah. Whoa. So that ended up being completely false. That never none of that happened. Oh, okay. There was no there was no organized chaos whatsoever. Or there was no, there were, there were not. I don't want to say there's no, there was no atrocities whatsoever. But those atrocities were, were fabricated by a Kuwaiti princess, who had been working with the CIA, mm-hmm. and the CIA had coached her to say those things. To say that that the Iraqis were bayoneting babies and raping flight stewards. Th- that they were taking babies off of incubators mm-hmm. and stuff like that. that was like the big, the big uh, lie. Mm-hmm. The babies on incubators. Mm-hmm. So. At first, George Bush doesn't really have a problem with with the invasion, but then Margaret Thatcher oh, yeah. gets in his ear and changes his mind. This, this is one of our fun stories. <laughs> yeah, so Margaret movie. Thatcher gets in his ear mm-hmm. and, and changes his mind. They meet in Aspen together, and um, after they are gone for like a day, and the next day when they are back in a public view um his whole tune changes he starts calling him he's like he's hitler oh he's hitler wasn't it that like like, other... like like he he like there was nothing on their calendars like nobody knows what could have what was supposed to have gone down so that either that was a some t- top secret mission or something or <laughs> i don't there's there's ru- there's rumors about them having an affair together i've made the joke before I don't think that happened, but it's it's fun to think about. <laughs> it's fun to it's fun to think about it. Um, but she some she got in his ear, so she. I mean, it was mainly British influence that that got us into the first Gulf War, and I think what happened is that she told him that. So, Kuwait was a long was always a, a British colony in the twentieth century was always a part of the British Empire. And I think the British wanted Kuwait back in their sphere of influence. She probably convinced him that this would be an opportunity to get Saudi Arabia back in the U.S. sphere of influence. Why? Because, because the Kuwait... Because they, they, they had kind of a falling out in the 70s mm-hmm. um, with... With the gas with crisis, the oil, mm-hmm. with the gas crisis, mm-hmm. so she probably thought. So he was probably thinking, and they probably were talking about how to get these countries back in their sphere, these oil-rich companies back in their sphere of influence. So I think that's probably what what was like the logic behind that, and it was also an opportunity for for Bush to try out a bunch of new military systems. Yeah. So the Patriot missile system comes out of here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's and it was it was really bad. Well, I mean, the Patriot missile system sucked in the Gulf War. Yeah, I can't argue against that. <laughs> You're right. It didn't shoot. Did it shoot down one Scud missile? No. <laughs> it missed like every Scud That's missile. That's why everyone uses S four hundred or at the S series of of Russian um, missile systems now. So the U.S. smashes Iraq. Um, they kill tens of thousands of civilians doing it. Um, 
which, you know, they they kill a lot of human beings in this process. They um, completely uh, contaminate the air, and Iraqi children developed cancer. Um, they killed con- they killed military conscripts while they were running and surrendering. Mm-hmm. It was a complete it was bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Blood, it was a bloodbath. Yeah, uh, they dropped more bombs on our in the Gulf War. I think in any war in human history. That's or one of the it's like it's in a I forget the exact number, but it's like a magnificent number. Um, magnificent as in just like a large number, right. not as in like not, it was not a good. good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after the war, the UN passes resolution six eighty seven. So destroy all WMDs. Um which, you know, as it applies, it requires Iraq to destroy all their WMDs. Shortly after this, President Bush authorized the CIA to create the conditions for the removal of Saddam Hussein. So not through direct warfare, you know, because they didn't they decided not to march into Baghdad because um, even Dick Cheney himself said that. Going into Baghdad would create a huge quagmire because there's too much ethnic and sectarian divisions and it would cause like a big, it would cause things to go completely out of control and that they would be alone and other countries would realize that it would be a bad idea. Um, Dick Cheney is saying it's coming Smart from words, if only he would have heeded them, you know? Instead, they do convince minority groups uh, to, to, uh, to rebel against Saddam Hussein, but they just kind of leave him hanging, mm. and Saddam Hussein ends up massacring these people. Right. But we, Bush authorizes the, the CIA to create these conditions to remove Saddam Hussein from uh, from power. Start building the case, and so to speak. Right. The, C, the CIA contacts Ahmad Chalabi, a a Iraqi exile, um, really just career criminal, bank fraudsters, embezzler, just kind of crooked person. Comes from um, comes from a long a, line of like very rich people with ties to you know um, monarchies and and money, Hashemite monarchies and a whole lot of money. And with them, they create the Iraqi National Congress, which was a group of uh, anti. It was just like a collection of anti-Saddam people, so opposition groups, um, mainly like just wealthy anti wealthy exiles um, would be the best way to describe them, uh, and then also, I mean, that would be the head of the group, and then there's other opposition figures. So the INC, um, they set up like. What the INC does, it's like it's it's really interesting. They set up a phony newspaper filled with stories of of uh, Saddam Hussein abuses. So, according to CIA um, agent Robert Baer, it was something like a. I'm going to read a quote. It was something like a spy novel. It was a room where people were scanning Iraqi intelligence documents into computers. In doing disinformation, there was a whole wing of it that he did forgeries in. 
He was forging back then in order to bring down Saddam. So it became sort of like an intelligence shopping mall. Because they were getting the intelligence documents in and then also making fake news at the same time. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This sounds super similar to like what we did in Iran with with Kermit uh, and buying up all the newspapers and just writing a bunch of bullshit to try and stir up an insurrection. Sounds pretty similar. Yeah. It's uh it's the same playbook. <laughs> it's what what's the word that you call um like propaganda like inner the term for propaganda when you uh submit it in a different country? Mm. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. So that <laughs> that so um Charlby also though he creates a like a militia army out of a thousand fighters in, in the northern Kurdish-controlled region of Iraq and then bribes tribal leaders and in Mosul to support a planned rebellion against Saddam Hussein. At the same time, he's also hosting members of Iranian intelligence who promise that when the operation is launched, Iran will hit Iraq from the south. So... I think I think that so there's rumors that Chalabi was a double agent for Iran. For Iran. Yeah. How so? Because what he did, I mean, just think of the consequence. Like think about what happened after the Iraq War. Who benefited the most? Iran. Iran. Mm-hmm. The, he. They. May they took out the Sunni secular leader and they and they put the Shias in charge at the end of the war, and that's where Iranian the Iranian tentacles really came in. So they really achieved Iran Iranian foreign policy goals. I guess if you put it that way, for sure, and kind of the same thing is happening now, you know, or at least continuing till today. The reason why uh, Iran is, is so heavily involved in Iraq to today. Well, that's where it starts. Right. It starts with the invasion of Iraq mm-hmm. after 2003. Right. When one man, one vote. Um, when the Ayatollah, when, when Skiri um, comes to power and the, when the Shiites vote for a Shia chauvinist government in Baghdad, which hadn't been the case in like 600 years or something like that. Since, since the, the, the capital of the, uh, Arab empire wasn't even in, since the caliphate wasn't even located, uh, was located in Cairo. So the CIA learns that so he's setting up a, a militia with a thousand fighters. Uh, the CIA does learn that that uh, that Baptist officials have caught wind of the plot, and they tell Chalabi, "Don't do this. You're going to be on your own." He does it anyway. Mm. The plan fails, and the CIA is furious. The CIA actually cuts ties with Chalabi after this, mm-hmm. and. Robert Bear, who was like his his handler, he said the, he says the quality of the the INC's intelligence was really bad. 
that there was a feeling that Chalabi was prepping defectors and that we had no systematic way to vet the information, but it was obvious most of it was cooked. So they didn't even trust, the CIA uh, didn't even trust this guy's intelligence. They, they realized this guy was just some like monarchist type I mean, you got one of the overthrow the government. You got to be pretty really bad just, to not get who, who was who is seeking who is seeking regime change for you know his own personal reasons, um, his own you know his he was seeking regime change because he wanted power in Iraq. Right. I mean, he's super like his whole family was super closely connected with Hashemite kings for like since forever. You know, like. Um, well, that's what he told. That's what he ends up telling the neocons right. later is that, hey, don't worry. When Saddam Hussein is gone, we'll just put a Hashemite king in charge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They'll love this. The Iraqis will love being ruled by a Hashemite king. Yeah, I think I think basically like his great grandfather, his grandfather was like a tax collector for a Hashemite king, and then like his father and his mother were both kind of like. Very politically, you know, involved uh, with uh, the Hashemite monarchies, and and then later when um, Khalibi founds um, uh, the Petra Bank in Jordan, uh, he lends him and his bank lends Prince Hassan, uh, who became like a really close friend of, of Khalibi, um, he lends him like thirty million dollars, um, which I think helped him to then start opening up bank branches in. Um, in the Israeli occupied West Bank. Um, that's kind of besides the point though. I, I, he, he has a long, super long history with, with all these Kings. And, and it was clear, I think from this, that the motivation was, you know, selfish in nature. <laughs> yeah. The guy's a bastard. Um, meanwhile. Um, so I, one of the demands is that Iraq destroy all of their all their WMDs and chemical weapons. Most of these weapons are weapons that the U.S. sold them. So the U.S. knows that Iraq has chemical weapons, weapons of mass destruction, which is kind of vague. Um, a lot of things fall under WMDs because we they have the receipt. You know, we, we have the receipts on these. We were the ones selling them during the Iran-Iraq war. So between 1991 and 1997, Iraq destroys the vast majority of all of their weapons. So I have this written down. So they destroy more than more than 38,000 filled and unfilled chemical uh, munitions. Munitions. 690, 690 tons of chemical warfare agents, over 3,000 tons of precursor chemicals, more than 400 pieces of production equipment, 48 missiles, 8 mobile missile launchers, and 29 missile warheads modified to carry chemical or biological agents. So, after cross-referencing weapons, um, after cross-referencing this, UN inspectors conclude that 90% of Iraq's weapons have been destroyed or dismantled. Scott Ritter who was the chief UN inspector said that the remaining 10% was most likely destroyed during the first Gulf war. Hans Blix also in 1997 also comes out and he says that there is no evidence that Iraq has an active nuclear weapons program. 
So then if, if, they, if they didn't have a nuclear weapons program, why did Saddam kick the UN's weapons inspectors out? Because the U.S. installed video surveillance systems whenever U.N. inspectors would go. And they were, so they were spying on Saddam in, in the Iraqi military. Mm -hmm. That's why he threw them out. Because he was scared that they were going to assassinate him, really. I mean, that's a founded fear. <laughs> uh, he didn't know it, but they were definitely cooking up the, you know, the, the case to have him deposed at that time. So, But it, didn't, it also I, didn't look good for him because, like, kicking out the UN's weapons inspectors was basically, like, signing his own death warrant. It's like, see, look, you know. There's this 10% of uh, weapons that we can't account for, and he's not letting the weapons inspectors come in and verify it, even though, you know, guys like Hans Blix and Scott Ritter had already said that it was probably destroyed already. Um, it, it's just not a good look for Saddam. doesn't look very good for him, even if he was, you know, worried that he was going to get offed. Yeah. In hindsight, maybe it wasn't it wasn't the smartest strategic move, but he offered to debate George Bush before the Iraq War on on uh, his WMD stockpile. George H W or George George W George W George George W Bush. Oh nope. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't take that. <laughs> That's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. So around this time. Um, Ahmad Chalabi, he starts to court the neoconservatives. So Chalabi tells them that if he replaces Saddam Hussein, that he would normalize relations with Israel and allow the construction of a pipeline from Mosul to Haifa. That's an interesting. They, that's an interesting proposition. I think. I think that's a, that's an important proposition because if you look at like way back in the fucking 40s like post-world war ii we have both british uh and americans like you know heads of state who are who are openly admitting that you know gaining access to middle eastern oil and like controlling that region is like crucial for domination i think if i can pull this up real fast um the there's a british paper that had said that um the middle east is a vital prize for any power seeking uh domination so uh there was like a paper um put out by the british government that you know basically said that this was the you know this was the premium power interest in world influence or world domination and this is way back in 47 right and and then a second thing to to note on this one is the the kind of deal that the United States has, you know, somewhat under the table with uh, Israel, whereby we are agreeing or promising uh, to ensure Israel's energy security, right? Like indefinitely. And pretty much every five years, this, this agreement had been re-upped every single year. This was uh, in 75, uh, Kissinger signs the Memorandum of Understanding, it was called, and it was... Um, Kind of making Israel, uh, making us obligating, obligated to provide Israel with a security of, of oil reserves and, and energy supplies in, in a quote time of crisis. What this ended up doing, though, if we skip forward quite a bit to about 2002, is that, you know, the 
we keep renewing this this agreement and every time we renew this agreement there's always these additional you know uh, uh, special legislations that are attached so in one particular one it says that uh, the US uh, actually has to provide Israel with strategic oil reserves even during domestic uh, shortages and that ran up a bill for us at the time uh, in 2002 of about $3 billion. Um, and we were also kind of um, uh, on the hook to uh, provide our own oil tankers if regional oil tankers refused to ship, you know, uh, to Israel. So we've got, um, so the reason why I'm pointing all this stuff out is because, you know, Jollibee is now going to all of these, you know, um, uh, neocons and he's saying, hey, I can normalize relations with Israel and I'll build you the pipeline from the Middle East and all that oil straight to Haifa, right? So it's like kind of checking off a couple of boxes, right? It's checking off the very historic idea that control of the Middle East is, is vital for power domination. It's setting up a direct pipeline and a, and a, um, a, a direct satisfaction of the agreement between the United States and Israel for energy security and, and um, guarantees on energy security. And uh, yeah, I think those are the, those are two very important points. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So I bet it rings real clearly in, in those neocons ears. And yeah, David Wormser, um, who was the director of the Middle Eastern program for the American Enterprise Institute, um, he released a, an op-ed like right like when he met after he met Chalabi on the uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was "Iraq Needs a Revolution." And in this article, he just advocates for. For, for Chalabi, he, he advocates for the re resurrection of the INC because the CIA had stopped funding the INC, had stopped working with the INC because all their stuff was bullshit. Mm -hmm. And they knew it. And they were incompetent. Right. And he, they, they just, it, it wasn't working out. There were no Mujahideen. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there were no Mujahideen. <laughs> it's like no, no wonder the U.S., um, whenever they sponsor mercenaries, they sponsor... Um, the radical the worst ones <laughs> yeah yes well i mean have you seen their work <laughs> um they also so pnac um they also write a letter to bill clinton urging him to remove saddam from power and clinton does eventually sign into law the iraqi liberation act which like which states that the u.s will pursue a policy of, of regime change but i guess the neoconservatives is a is a good thing to stick on um i think the best way to describe like what i said to you earlier the the 
neoconservative movement is the intersection of the MIC and the Israel lobby. Mm-hmm. So these guys all came up working for um, Senator Scoop Jackson, who was a hardline Cold War, uh, a Cold Warrior. So we're talking about guys like Bill Crystal, who I'm disappointed that I didn't get to see the debate from Scott Horton. Yeah, with. yeah, I wish that we we bought tickets like a year in advance for that, and and well, coronavirus ruins everything. Um. Scooter Libby, uh, David Wormser, Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld. Um, the craziest among them was, it, well, he's still alive, Richard Pearl, mm-hmm. um, along with being the fattest and ugliest neocon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a very, he's just a fat, ugly. Fat. <laughs> yeah. So... Have you heard of the clean break? Uh, yeah. Yeah, totally. We've talked about yeah. this before. So he writes a policy paper for Benjamin Netanyahu when he was a first when he was first elected uh, Prime Minister of Israel back in nineteen ninety six and is titled A Clean Break, a new strategy for securing the realm. And the paper um, it advocates for a lot of the same policies that were advocated by Onan Yunan in the 1980s. We've talked about this Israeli policy paper right. that was written. Mm-hmm. It advocates for it's kind of like kind of like a continuation of that. Um, but like the main things that it points out is that uh, it, it it recommends that Israel pursue the downfall of their Arab neighbors, especially Syria and Iraq. Hmm. And the way to do this is by exploiting ethnic and sectarian tensions. The first step of this is to remove Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Because their thinking is that, or Richard Pearl's thinking is, which kind of represents the consensus of the neocons, because a war in Iraq would just completely spiral out of control and destabilize the entire Middle East. And I mean, it's not wrong. It's not wrong. Yeah, they were right. I think any Middle Eastern, it's not like we don't have good analysts who are are able to, um, at the very least, predict things that seem very predictable. I mean, we had top analysts, like hundreds and thousands of them, crunching all the numbers and getting all the data. I think part of the data might have been false, unfortunately and totally fabricated and falsified so that they can fit a particular narrative or, you know, particular ideology. I'm, I'm pointing at you, neocons. Um, I'm talking about the history. Like, people, there's enough people who should know Middle Eastern history to know that, like, these, these countries are time bombs. Right. So it's very easy to... Removing a strongman dictator and... Uh, fostering sectarian tensions will will turn out very poorly. Think about all the terrorist groups that were created in Iraq that never existed in Iraq mm-hmm. prior to prior to two thousand three and after two thousand three. There was no such thing as Al Qaeda in Iraq. Right. There was no such thing as the the Bada Brigade. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as ISIS. 
there was no such thing as Khatib Hezbollah. Right. At least I don't think there was a Khatib Hezbollah the before the Iraq front, War. Right. Mm-hmm. There was no Al Nusra Front. Mm-hmm. So all these militias, mercenary groups, or or whatever, all these mercenary groups are were created as a result of sectarian infighting and um, and just complete instability because. After the Iraq War, basically Sunnis were were kind of trying to grasp on, you know, hang on the power, and they were straight up murdering Shiites. And you know, they if there was a Sunni Shiite village, then you know, one side would kill the other side, mm-hmm. and then when other when one side uh, engages in that behavior, it forces the other side to to, to respond, band together, right. mm-hmm. to to respond and band together. Mm-hmm. So it just creates like this nonstop war. And during Saddam Hussein's reign, the one thing that you can say is that there wasn't this in Baghdad, at the very least, in like the urban metropolitan areas. I think fifty percent of the couples were were uh, interfaith marriages. Really. So they're Sunnis and she is married yeah. to each other. That's interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, they were so, mostly, it was like the, his government was secular, you know? Like, they weren't like a, they weren't like a, like an Islamic republic, you know? So, I guess I mean, that's kind of a they, product of that. Not necessarily they were, a they were, of, like, he's a good ruler. <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I. And that's a yeah. normal thing. <laughs> like, that's something that is, is just what a happens. normal right sign of like a healthy society right. like interfaith marriages right. and uh inter inter race marriages and interfaith marriages are a sign that there's not prevalent racism right. in, in your country or sectarianism either, for that it, matter you know or sectarianism mm-hmm. uh, or however people divide themselves right. it means that you know it's, it's somewhat of a healthy environment if there's a large portion of these uh you know families that are forming right that are putting putting aside these differences. I was always taught when after 9-11 that I remember being told that Iraqi women when they went to school get, um, that uh, chemicals were thrown in their face whenever they try to go to school. Really? In Iraq. In Iraq. Because they were so mean to women in Iraq. Yeah. I remember being told that by teachers. I've never heard that one before. Well, I'm probably good. Yeah. Maybe it was just one person who is uh, some one adult who was uh, just feeding you like fake news, feeding me bullshit. <laughs> but I remember here. I remember that story. I had a teacher telling me that, and I remember this very vividly. That oh, like in Iraq, the government throws chemicals in women's faces if they go to school. The government. So you should be happy that you you're able to go to school here and i was like huh those fucking iraqis you know at the time when i was like in seventh eighth grade i was like yeah i was like i, I was gonna i was prepared to believe this sort of stuff right. but um yeah a lot of this, this came paper from this, advocate- those these papers that you're talking about right like a lot of a lot of those ideologies came from the the pnac papers that came out yeah and there's a bunch of them there's a bunch of these papers that that um, that were published. If you're going to look at one paper though from PNAC, you should P 
PNAC is is a project for a new American century. They're they're a think they're a neoconservative think tank that's that uh, came up in 1997, and um, there's this one policy paper that we've talked about yeah, before. Yeah, we went in depth on it. It was fun. We went in depth on this. But if you're going to read one policy paper from PNAC, type in Rebuilding America's Defenses. It's a trip. And just read this entire thing. You're going to be like, who the fuck just, who, who wrote this? <laughs> Let, if you said that L. Ron Hubbard wrote it, I would believe yep. you because it may as well have been L. Ron Hubbard who wrote this as like a plot about Lord Xenu's ideology. Mm. I mean, at a certain point, like I was surprised that it didn't end with lizard people, to be very honest. So spoiler alert, there's no lizard people in that paper, but you might you can you can totally insert it and it wouldn't feel out of place. So in this paper, they call for just all sorts of just quite frankly insane policy so they write out the blueprint for for pax americana like pax pax romana mm-hmm. why would you peace through what's strength. the point of having like pax americana because we've all heard what pax uh pax romana was it's pax romana right mm-hmm. i'm not yeah, just yeah, butchering that the the peak up like when Marcus Aurelius was the emperor right. of of Rome, mm-hmm. in like the year eight in the year like what eighty nine A.D. I think Something that was like, like the that, official yeah. year. And um, the British Empire, not the British, the Roman Empire may as well be in the British. The Roman <laughs> Empire expanded from from um, Egypt all the way to Germany to Britain. It, in the north, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it controlled like a big, like pretty much everything at, at yeah. its at its height of territory. Right. The only thing that they didn't control in the main world, in the known world, was was Eastern Asia right. and like the steppes, the steppe people. The Mongols they never were able. They were never able to fight the steppe nope. people. Whenever they whenever they ventured out too to the, far to the into into the plains, the, the Roman legions would get, get destroyed by yeah. horseback. Ra- raiders yeah they would get wrecked um anyway pax americana not a pax americana it's basically an expansionist idea of like you know let's just dominate everything and that's how we're going to establish peace yeah they also call for the transformation of the military um usurping the un which is nuts in and of itself removing hostile dictators um so that's, they call that, for that one we're still kind of doing <laughs> yeah we're still i mean that's not that's, that's still, still kind of part of the well. playbook yeah mm-hmm. the expansion of bases um Expense. they call for a space a space command that's the only one i'm on board with for the entire paper <laughs> they call for a space command um they also target weapons that target people by yeah genotype. it starts getting super weird yeah and I'm telling you, mm-hmm. at the end of this paper, when you get to the, towards the end of it, there is there are some these are the weirdest parts of the paper. Like the other things could come from Mike Pompeo, fucking fat face mm-hmm. eating McDonald's. The it's weapons target people weapons that target people by genotypes is just incredibly uncomfortable for any normal person. Yeah. Like I never even would have thought of that ever. Yeah. 
Because I'm because I'm normal. Right. Also, um, like, would you ever think of that? Like, would you if you no. were just if you were even writing a fantasy? Like, let's just say if you were like let's if you're like trying to come up with a very fun make pretend idea. Right. Like, oh, imagine if we're like fighting space demons and like killing aliens. Right. Uh, no, so first we're going to look at their genotype and we're going to specifically target only them with this ridiculous bl- that's genotypes. some fucked up shit dude you have to be like some new brand of psychopath like new brand of just nuts to think like how can we specifically target a race or a specific because that's what it is like let's be real targeting a specific genotype is saying I want to pick out who should die from this particular weapon it's nuts. By by, by their by race. their genetics. Mm-hmm. So uh, by their DNA, by the weapon that monitors that's able to track or or recognize someone's DNA. Right. Just ignore ignore certain sets of DNA and, and specifically target others. Which is, it's just fucking nuts. By the way, uh, Will DeMarco, props to you. Thank you. He writes, and he gave us the uh, corrected time for the Pax Romana, which is 30 BC, uh, Augustus Caesar, to Marcus Aurelius' death in 180 AD. I guess 89 AD does kind of fit right in the middle of that, so I think you weren't too far off there, but thanks for the, uh, for the uh, tip, Will. I know that was the that was like the... the Augustus Caesar. Well, that's the start of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. with Augustus Caesar, and then the Roman Empire ends with fuck. God damn. Well, I I consider the end of it when when they split really to like the eastern and the western, to the eastern and the western. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what do I know? Who are you to say? I just know that Marcus Aurelius is the emperor in the movie Gladiator, which is one of the best movies ever made. Best monologues in any movie. Best historical, best period piece of all time. Yeah. I take it, I think it's better than Braveheart. Actually, I don't know. I love Ridley Scott movies, but that's a a side note in general. And I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. Um, but yeah, so one of the most alarming things though about this paper is that it's not only just like the weapon stuff at the end of it. So to, there's a quote and it says further the process to further process of trans to further the process of process of transformation, even if it brings revolutionary change is likely likely to be a long one, absent some catastrophic and catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Hmm. I don't even know what to say about that, to be honest. Yeah, it's weird. It's very weird. I just got finished reading uh, Max Blumenthal's book, uh, Management of Savagery. Oh, you finished it? How was it? It's great. I, I recommend it to anyone, um, to anyone and everyone. But I just finished. He has a chapter on on um, the Iraq War and 9-11. And he's, his conclusion is that he hasn't really come up with a strong conclusion, but he suggests that Osama bin Laden had read... Uh, rebuilding America's defenses and 
his the purpose was that he saw that these neoconservatives were looking for a new Pearl Harbor, so he figured that a attack on the United States would trigger a U.S. invasion. That's kind of like what he suggests in his chapter in his chapter about 9/11, about some of Osama bin Laden's motivations. He doesn't make a strong suggestion. He doesn't make a like it's not his like overall conclusion in the book, but it's a suggestion that he does make. Mm. Which I find, you know, it's an interesting idea. So, um, after George Bush is elected, um, all these longtime analysts are are transferred out of the Pentagon, and all these neoconservatives come in, and transferred out is a nice way to say it. I, I say they got fucking booted. They got shit canned. They got shit canned. Yeah, because like there were certain positions where like. If you were to, tra- I forget exactly the exact position what they were called, but there are certain seats where if you change like the head of this one particular department, uh, that person would stay in like this interim role to like train up the next person, and like they just said, "Nah, we're not doing that." There's like no no guard, no changing of the guard process whatsoever for a lot of these roles. Well, they they were in a rush to bring in these neoconservatives. And it was really Dick Cheney who was spearheading this. Right. Because George Bush was a fucking idiot. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's too busy painting. He's too, yeah, he's too busy. He's either painting or at his ranch. Right. But, I mean, they seize, after 9-11, they seize on the opportunity to create, I guess, the, you know, what their main objective is, is, is to create a link between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. Because remember, you know, you need a new Pearl Harbor-like event to trigger this transformation that these neocons are talking about um so dick cheney and donald rumsfeld and paul wolfowitz they create this secretive um ad hoc intelligence bureau within the pentagon and they call themselves the cabal see those those fucking aliens the lizard people that's what they call themselves to this dark cabal and they they drive U.S. foreign policy, and they're and, and what they're doing is that they're just in, they're spinning intelligence reporting uh, to prompt a specific goal, and that goal is to invade Iraq. Yeah. This is the group that becomes the Office of Special Plans, which is a secret office within the Pentagon, headed by Douglas Fife, mm-hmm. and they gather and interpret raw intelligence data. They refuse uh, any participation from the CIA and the DIA, and they cherry-pick talking points out of unverified rumors and tall stories fed to them by the Iraqi National Congress, led by Chalabi. Mm-hmm. Because Chalabi is the one who's feeding them all this, all this fucking bonus and all this bogus information yeah, but even this, it's so about, weird about that not to get ahead of ourselves here but like even the cia didn't trust this dude why were they like buying this shit they weren't it's not that they tr- they didn't care about whether, whether he was trustworthy or not is that he was giving them the the correct talking points to pursue their policy goals they didn't give a fuck about if it was accurate yeah. or not do you think they cared yeah, i mean i know we're going to talk about judith miller in a second but like i watched a a, a video uh of her today just before this for on prager you go figure of all places but like it was straight from the horse's mouth you know so i was like let me listen to what she has to say 
And she was like, she was on Prager. You. Dude, the f- you should watch this video. It's fucking crazy because the first words out of her mouth was, was something to the tune of like, you know, I got us into Iraq. Like literally was like the first fucking sentence she says. And then and then she goes on to make the argument that it wasn't lies. It was like, you know, uh, misinformation or something like that, you know, and like they were all they they made a mistake. And the information, the, the the information wasn't good or some shit like that. It was so dumb. But I, I just like blown away by the first fucking sentence she said. Sorry, I don't mean to like, I know you're going to talk about George Miller in, in a bit, but. Oh, no, no, feel free. Let's, let's like, go down just, this rabbit hole. I, I loved shitting on PragerU. <laughs> They're rebranding a lot, right. actually. Uh, this is something I noticed because I, I, I actually do subscribe to them. Don't Don't hate on me. I'm trying to break out of my bubble and hear what everyone has to say. Uh, I don't believe. You. Yeah, but at least lo- listen to a good. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't Do, listen to fucking. I, I, I listen to them. You know that I listen Officer to them Bar Brady literally be for, for comedic value, like because some of the shit they said is. is hey there, I'm Dennis Prager. The, Dennis Prager. Let me tell you he's, about he's not the Judea fr- Christian Dyers. <laughs> he's not. He's not the front man anymore, dude. I watched this video not too long ago, uh, that was like headed up by like this young-looking kid. I've never seen him in my life before. There was no mention of Dennis Prager. Like it was like filmed and shot very nicely. It was edited extremely well. Even the music sounded like trendy. It was like kind of a future trap hip hop kind of something in the background. But what they're saying is like this bullshit, like neoconservative nonsense, you know? They're rebranding and it is trendy. You need to listen, you need to watch Alan Dershowitz's. <laughs> video on israel palestine and it is perhaps i mean alan dershowitz the he's most the 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 stupidest thing i've ever seen in my entire life the most inaccurate video i have ever seen about israel palestine yeah. where he just fabricates and makes things up the the one they had on the iraq war they had another one on the iraq war i forgot who did this blamed the Iraq war on the Arab mindset. Really? No, excuse me. That was the one on Israel-Palestine. Oh, okay. Alan Dershowitz blames the is like the the Palestinians on the Arab mindset. Right, that, that's that was what, the conclu- what like that, that is a graph. It says Arab mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, this is this is just insane. Like this is in, insane to think like this. It's the Arab mindset. It's it's like kind of um, ignoring, like willfully ignoring, you know, all of history, <laughs> yeah. like the entire history yeah. of the conflict. It's willfully well, just because they're fucking crazy Arabs. It doesn't even like even touch on like the historical backdrop that like leads up to all of these events. Anyway, I digress. Let's talk about you. Right now, it's it's a it, just fun fact about Dennis Prager. So Officer Bar Brady is based off in South Park is based off Dennis Prager. Is he? I didn't know that. That's interesting. Hey, move along here. Nothing to see here. I'm Dennis Prager. Um, He's based. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, anyway, Judith Miller. Uh, so you know, let's talk about her. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about the anthrax first. Oh, all right, so right. between between September and November, there are a series of anthrax attacks that are targeted at U.S. senators and their journalists. And the media creates a link uh, between Saddam Hussein and, and Al Qaeda through these anthrax attacks, and 
despite all the evidence, the, the person who sent these this anthrax out was from the United States. He killed himself. It was from a lab in the United States who sent this all this anthrax uh-huh. out. Um, but it was spun into a report that Muhammad Atta, the lead hijacker, right. 9-11, had received the anthrax from Iraqi intelligence while in Prague, which was 100% inaccurate. Never happened. No, did, did not happen. Even Robert Mueller came out and said that, no, this never happened. Bobby Mull said it didn't happen? Then it definitely this, didn't this, happen. This never, this never happened. We, we ran down all of the... We, we ran down hundreds of leads and checked every record we could get our hands on, and we there is no evidence that Muhammad Atta was ever in Prague at this time. All of the evidence points that he was in Florida at during this time. They still... So... In the New York Times, after Robert Mueller even makes that statement, they still publish an article called Mr. Atta Goes to Prague, which just just is a report on that story about how the U.S. and, and, uh, Chez, and Czech officials um, are, you know, they, they have intelligence on this, this uh, meeting between Iraqi intelligence officers and, and Muhammad Atta. And when Dick Cheney is using this as a pretext, he calls the Czech Republic Czechoslovakia. That's, it shows I mean, you, that's, all right, in fairness. It just shows you, know, you come on, man, you're, you're, you're a journalist, I get it. Former defensive, you're, you are the Secretary of Defense oh, right, for Secretary George H.W. Right. Bush, mm-hmm. and you're the Vice President right now. You're an educated man. You don't know that the name changed after the Cold War. It really shows where your mindset right, is. Right. Like your mindset is back in like the fucking nineteen eighties. Oh, the Czechoslovakia. I guess. I guess. Well, okay. I'll tell them. In, fair, in, fair, in fairness, I, I could see that being a quick gaffe. You know, well, even if it's written, I could see that being as being a quick gaffe. But was this like something that happened frequently? Was that like more than one occurrence of this? I forget exactly what it was on the. He was talking to some news outlet. But he called it when explaining mm-hmm. uh, intelligence ties. He was like, "Hey, I Czechos, you know, we have reports in Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. It, it just it's overall, overall uh, level of ignorance." And I don't think these neoconservatives are smart. I just think they're criminals. Um, yeah. So a lot of these guys, I don't think they're necessarily like super smart and intelligent i think they're smart enough to get by get by with their criminal activity so judith miller um so colin powell went on fox in 2002 and said that iraq had chemical and biological weapons stocks and saddam hussein was building a nuclear weapon and what he did is that they're like, okay, well, how do you know this? And he cited a New York Times article by Judith Miller as evidence. So here's what they would do. So the INC would pass on their carefully um, collaborated lies to Judith Miller, who was having an affair with, with Scooter mm-hmm. Libby, by the mm-hmm. way. 
he was she was Scooter Libby's lover, mm-hmm. who would put them on the front page of the New York Times, just in time for Dick Cheney or Colin Powell to be asked about it on Meet the Press. Right. They would basically serve up the bullshit so that the uh, the daytime talk shows are easy. Yeah, well, they would just serve up, well, not just the daytime talk shows, we're talking about Congress. Right. Like, they would testify in Congress. They'd mm-hmm. be like, okay, so what's your evidence? Well, the New York Times. Right. So, they would just rehash. It's a circle jerk, they would right? Be, right? Like, yeah, it was a giant circle jerk. Right. They would feed out intelligence to these news reporters and then cite their own bogus sources as evidence. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, James Moore, who was a CIA analyst, said that the the White House had a perfect deal with with Miller. Uh, Chalabi was providing the Bush people with information they need to support their political objectives with Iraq, and he's supplying the same material to, to Judith Miller. Chalabi tips her on something, and then she goes to the White House, which has already heard the same thing from Chalabi, and she gets it corroborated by some insider she's always described as a senior administration official. An unnamed source in the administration. So there's so many there's there's like a lot of like false reporting, and she's she went to jail for right. this. So, for for example, um, so in, in September of 2002, she reported on the front page of the Times that um, the U.S. had intercepted aluminum tubes indicating that Saddam was developing a nuclear Don't bomb. even get me started on the aluminum tubes. Can I, can I jump in on that one? I'll make it real fast yeah. for this one. So this one's crazy uh, because, you know— Basically, they're using this these aluminum tubes as evidence that they're building a, a WMD. They're building a bomb because they're buying all these aluminum tubes. What else are they using the aluminum tubes for? What they're what they're trying to suggest is that uh, that the Iraq Survey Group, which determined what these tubes would be used for or could be used for, was that they would be using them for eighty one millimeter rockets, right? And there was no evidence found anywhere that there was a program to design or develop 81 millimeter aluminum rotors for like a uranium centrifuge, which is what you would, you know, create in order to make uh, a highly enriched uranium. They were just using it for fucking rockets, like regular bombs. Now, could you make the argument like they were making rockets so that they can put a nuclear warhead on it? Sure, you can say that. But that's not what they were saying. They were saying these nuclear, these aluminum tubes were being used to make these centrifuges. But here's the thing. They're talking about a zip-type centrifuge, which was originally produced in in the 1950s. Um, It's a gas centrifuge. It's named after one of its main developers. It's like a German scientist, Gerno Zip. Uh, And basically it uses these these rotors uh, that are normally made of like really strong material. Aluminum is one of them. Uh, But they had to be like high strength and, and specialized types of materials. After the 1950s, nobody uses aluminum anymore um, for these gas centrifuges. Like, literally nobody in the whole world. 
they start making them out of things like uh, margin steel and carbon fiber instead because they're just much more useful and beneficial. So they're trying to say, hey, oh, look, they bought all these 81 millimeter tubes made of aluminum so that they can make these centrifuges. Nobody uses that shit anymore. Sorry. I, I was like, that's... I guess not everybody's a nerd. Cole Powell at the UN Security Council was like, well, they're buying, they're like, what's your evidence that you're buying nuclear? Well, you know, the aluminum tubes that they have are, it's just so alarming that we, it it must be a nuclear bomb. It's like, I don't even know how to like describe it. It's like, remember that, you know, who's the only person who, who made fun of this and mocked us? The only, no one from, this is the only person, Dave Chappelle. Remember the Dave Chappelle skit with Black Bush? Mm -hmm. He was like, aluminum tubes. (laughs) He's the only person who made a mockery of right. this. We've seen it, it on it was, SNL. It was a joke. It was literally a joke. Like no, nobody would. Even people who don't know shit about like zip type um, gas centrifuges for uranium enrichment, even people who don't know shit about that, heard this story that they were buying aluminum tubes, and therefore somehow that means nuclear weapons. Like nobody bought that shit, except evidently, literally everyone at the New York Times. Well, what about the <laughs> well? Speaking of aluminum tools, uh, t- aluminum t- tubes, um, aluminum tubes, and the mobile weapon labs evidence. Oh, yeah, yeah. So Colin Powell comes into the UN Security Council with a a drawing, <laughs> a graphic as a computer graphic. Somebody um, sketched it out on their like. Someone sketched it out on a, on. <laughs> no, no. A no. Yeah. Someone is a made this. On Photoshop, <laughs> on on MS Paint, on MS Paint, on MS Paint <laughs> yeah. of mobile weapons labs. <laughs> this is the evidence. Like Saddam has mobile weapons labs. Look, I've I'm just I have a drawing. I'm just. <laughs> what if I just came in with like a picture of like a bunch of dots, unclear dots, and I was like, "Hey, um, uh, this person has herpes." <laughs> but I got evidence, like. <laughs> Um, but just the, yeah, the reason why you had to use fucking pictures is because you had zero evidence right. and it was an entire charade right. and it was a performance art. Powell, Colin Powell said that was the most shameful moment of his entire life. Yeah. So, I mean, he knew very well that he was lying about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, she also, Judith Miller also reported that the U S found mobile weapons after the, after the war started. Um, just, just, a, just deceptions, just complete deceptions. And, um, the nuclear weapon thing is that the trick that media played with all this was that, um, so a speechwriter named Michael Gerson suggested that they use the word smoking gun in mushroom cloud mm-hmm. together in every sentence. So whenever someone went to go speak with the press, you would say smoking gun mushroom cloud for so for example we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud that was like a common um that was a common like some common rhetoric yeah that was the line that was the line that was the line that was the talking point point. Mm -hmm. we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud um another one was mentioning al-qaeda and i and saddam hussein every chance you get so they say al-qaeda and, and saddam hussein in, in a sentence together even though they're not related to one another but you just make that mental relationship between even them. though that they hate right. each other 
Even though that there is no Al-Qaeda in Iraq with Saddam Hussein in charge. As, as putrid and as terrible of a person as Saddam Hussein was, as awful as Saddam Hussein, as bad as he was, uh, like... He did not let fucking terrorists... The claims were not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus. The, the most, um, I think, the... The biggest deception was the Niger forgeries. Mm-hmm. So the most compelling accusation was that Iraq secretly tried to purchase 500 tons of yellow cake uranium from Niger mm-hmm. to refine and produce nuclear weapons. Right. It was compelling because Iraq only had you know, one real plausible use for uranium. Right. And also Niger wasn't a part of um, the IAEA, you know. And they don't have to, they don't have to report their sales and and where they go to, and stuff like that. So, because that had happened in, in the past. I mean, like Iraq had been purchasing, you know, uranium from a number of uh, uh, different people over the years, including during the Iran Iraq War. Um, they had purchased it from Portugal. They had purchased it from Italy. They had purchased it from Brazil, uh, Niger, uh, definitely, um, but. I guess, you know, it was a plausible lie, as you said, because what else is he going to use yellow cake uranium for? And also, he had per- he had made that purchase before. Well, the documents that they were using in this case were completely false. Right, right. So, so the documents that proved that Saddam Hussein, like the receipt was, was, was forged. It was a forgery. And... The White House used this faulty intelligence and refused to share these documents with the IAEA until two weeks from the war. When the IAEA got the, the, these documents, they figured out these were forged within a couple of hours. The IAEA. They're like, okay, these are they, these were these were these were forgeries. So two weeks before the invasion, um, the Director General of the, the Atomic Energy Agency, they testified before the UN that this Niger dossier that is, that is based on is, is completely based off forged documents, mm-hmm. and the and they, they were just disregarded. It was like, oh yeah, that's not true. <laughs> now nah, they're real. <laughs> Okay, and again, this is the like this is kind of important because the IAEA, you know, is like the they are the organization that's supposed to like verify the 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 creation and the uh, sale uh, and the enrichment of fissile material pretty much across the entire planet, and they're saying that this is not right, and they're like, no, yes, it is, fake news. Yeah, this 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 fake news. Um, shit, we are at an hour. We're almost at two hours, okay. man, and we haven't even touched on just, we haven't even touched on all the the lies about the Iraq war, but I don't think it's possible to do it in a single episode because there are just so many. Hopefully that, that, that Between, wet your whistle, you know? Yeah, hopefully that wet your whistle. Um, all right, so should we wrap this yeah, one up? Yeah, I think so. Uh, if you're super interested in it, in the topic, and you want us to follow up on it, like we're happy to, um, let us know. Hit us up. 
And uh, for you folks listening on YouTube, hopefully this audio sounded a bit better for you, a little louder. And we appreciate the feedback, so keep giving it to us so that we can keep making the changes that make the, the podcast and the live stream better for you. Yes. Um, let us know if there's any technical issues. And if you're listening on, if you're, uh, yeah, subscribe to the channel if you're listening on YouTube. If you're listening on audio, uh, make sure that you rate and review the podcast. It is the number one way to help us grow the show. Uh, give us a five-star rating and a review. And um, yeah, we are going, we are planning on interesting, uh, interesting. We're planning on releasing a lot more interesting content. Um, we will keep you in the loop about some of the stuff that we're working on. But um, I guess uh, until uh, next week, do you have anything to say? Uh, I do. Uh, you might notice that we're recording today on a Wednesday and not a Thursday. So if something ridiculous happens on a Thursday and we don't talk about it for the Friday, that that's why. <laughs> so hopefully nothing crazy happens. Yeah, um, hopefully nothing too uh, nuts happens. All right, peace, guys. See ya.